Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Luke Baker, a partner at Portland, and today I'm delighted to be joined live in a studio, no less, by Mark Whitcroft. Mark is one of the UK's leading fintech nurturers and early stage investors. He's a former investment banker, working first with HSBC in London and Hong Kong, and later with Deutsche Bank in Singapore and New York. He's a founding partner of Illuminate Financial, a fintech-focused venture firm that has helped build a number of successful companies in the data, trading, and enterprise space. He sits on the board of several startups, is a member of the UK Investment Association's Fintech Advisory Panel, and was an angel investor in the UK's early wave of fintech in the last decade. Today, we're going to be talking about the UK's fintech environment, how it's built up over the last 15 years or so, what could be better, and what the future holds. This is To The Point. Mark, welcome. Thank you, Luke. And I'm feeling doubly lucky to have Mark here today, as I think only a few weeks ago, right, his wife gave birth to their second child. So I don't know whether we're helping him escape from family duties, but we are nonetheless very grateful to have you here. Thank you very much, Luke. This is definitely the most order in the chaos over the last few weeks. That's good to hear. Well, let's see if we can maintain some order. Um, If you search around on the internet, obviously there's tons of facts and figures setting out the size of growth in the UK fintech market in recent years. I'm going to name a few. $5.7 billion worth of investment in the first half of 2021 alone. That's a huge step up since 2019. Obviously, the pandemic had an impact, but there are more than 2,500 fintech companies that have been created in the UK overall. That's growing about 20% a year. Another figure says that revenue will hit $12 billion next year. I mean, what it clearly shows is the UK is an exciting and busy market, probably the, the busiest and most exciting after the United States. And a, a bunch of household names have emerged from it, Revolut, Starling, Monzo, Wise, others that are European but have some roots in, uh, in the UK, like Stripe, a Portland client, and Klarna. It's unimaginable, I think, that any major venture capital fund or even a startup fund wouldn't have an office or outpost in London. So, I mean... What's your view? How does it look to you? Why did you get into fintech in the first place? Sure. So in terms of getting into fintech, for me, um, I'd had a wonderful banking career, sort of traveling the world on someone else's ticket, working on various trading floors. And in Asia, I got to work with a small uh, technology company at the time called Tencent, uh, which has obviously gone on to very big things at this point. At the time, their their stock was trading at uh, 30 Hong Kong dollars, and I think it's around 500 now. So uh, big growth there. But that sort of got me interested in, in technology to start off with. I was then involved in platform rollout in one of the banks I was working in, and that was a great introduction to how things can be really challenging uh, in terms of technology uh, engagement within big enterprise. And I'd been an angel investor in some friends' businesses. They could have frankly been ice cream vans, but they just happened to be fintech companies. And I sort of understood the premise of them. And as my banking career sort of continued to go sideways and I was seeing the growth of these fantastic fintech companies, I was like, how do I get on that train? Um, So I ended up working at a uh, startup accelerator, fintech startup accelerator in London. Um, At the time, it was the sixth accelerator globally for fintech. Uh, And that was a really good tester for me as to, do I like the environment? I wrote down a list of 15 people in London who at the time were sort of fintech specialists. 
And one of those ended up being my business partner, and I helped him uh, launch uh, Illuminate Financial. Um, fast forward seven years with two funds in uh, and 30 investments. Amazing. When you first, having sort of been, if you like, schooled early on in Asia, where it probably it feels like it's very dynamic, you mentioned Tencent, did it feel like coming into the UK market sort of seven or eight years ago was a bit sleepy or was it already really happening? Um, I, I mean, I think one of the interesting things for me about fintech is actually, although the new wave of fintech is maybe 15 years old at this point, but actually it actually goes back a lot further than that because, you know, NASDAQ was the first world's electronic exchange in uh, 1971. SWIFT in 1973, 200 banks got together to try and solve the problem around cross-border payments. Probably PayPal is the the reference that people really talk to as to um, the launch of fintech as its own asset class, though, and that was in the late 90s. But fast forward today, there's thousands of fintechs. Um, I think China was fascinating in terms of the access to data for a lot of these firms, uh, which is very different in, in Europe and UK and, and the US, means that actually a lot of these companies are very ingrained in people's lives in a different fintech way. So yes, coming back to London, you know, those years ago, you, I knew a little bit more than other people, but at the time, because it was such a fast moving and evolving sector, it actually meant I was at the forefront of it, um, which uh, was interesting. Well, timing is everything, right? And good on you. But, but let's roll back a little bit. I mean, fintech is a, a phrase or a term that gets bandied around a lot. People associate it, I think, you know, clearly with finance and technology, and that sort of homes in on banking and things that are related to that. But how broadly would you define it now? Has it spread beyond that kind of that area into a wider set of um, offerings or a wider set of technology and financial sort of scope? Yeah, and I, it's a good question because I think for those that don't work in the sector, it can be sort of very confusing and all-encompassing. Um, I think high level, if you're looking at this sector for the first time, the way I would break it down is you have B2C, so business to consumer offerings, which is on your mobile phone, Luke, you may have some financial applications. And so that is individuals that are being serviced by these fintechs. The other bucket is B2B, which is business to business. And that may be companies selling into big enterprises, so selling software into banks or selling software into SMEs, so small and medium-sized businesses. And for me, those are kind of the two high-level buckets. You then go one level further down, and I think there's fintech and tech for fin, which was kind of what you were alluding to. In my mind, tech for fin, and the reason why this asset class has got so exciting, is there's this evolution of cloud and data analytics and the utilization of machine learning techniques that have meant there's a huge opportunity to um, use this technology within financial services. So a lot of these banks that have a spaghetti of systems and a myriad of data everywhere, a lot of these techniques can help them sort of better improve their systems. Fintech, you know, it is often related to, and some of the names you mentioned earlier, are where it's tech-enabled financial product. Um, so lending would be an example of that, where we've seen huge wave of change. But I think in general, it's a very broad category. It's a growing category, which is an important thing. And initially, as a high-level trend, it was viewed as a disruptor to the banking industry. I think that narrative has significantly moved on now to one where it's often about partnership, where banks are partnering with fintechs uh, to solve a lot of the clients' problems. And is some of this driven by cultural 
changes or, you know, new generation that comes along and it just genuinely expects to do things differently. They want to be, like you mentioned, sort of banking applications on a mobile phone rather than walking to a branch. I mean, it's an obvious example, but how much of it is driven by, uh, if you like, a new generation expectations? How much of it is driven by technology? And is there a point where the two effectively they meet? Yeah, I think that's right. I think one of the bigger trends I would highlight is I think now versus a decade ago, being an entrepreneur is a valid career choice. And actually, there's a lot of ecosystem built up around helping people get into it. Whereas before, when I graduated from university, it was very much about you go into a sort of monolined career path, which is very defined, right? You know, banking, uh, consulting, accounting, being a lawyer. Um, and you know, now fintech is very much an option for people if they if they want to pursue it. I think your point around technology that one has in their hands and the opportunity that that provides in terms of the service people can get is significant, right? You know, mobile phones today have more compute power than the first spaceships heading to the moon, right? So the opportunities now are significant. And customer demand, that's where a lot of this starts as well. The expectation as the end customer is, is significant. And, you know, I think a lot of fintechs target those in their 20s and 30s. Personally, I think one of the most interesting opportunities in fintech is those targeting the over 50s, over 60s and over 70s, because that's where a lot of the wealth sits. Um, but yeah, it's definitely an area where the technology is driving it as well as customer expectation, as well as this being a valid career choice. So when you look at London against, let's say, Europe and against the United States, maybe even Asia as well, so four areas, particularly in this industry, is London doing something distinct or is there more access to capital? Is there a particular set of expertise that sets London apart in some way or is it just competing for pools of capital against those others? Yeah, I mean, you mentioned at the beginning, right? I think the US is the is the benchmark. Um, you know, the technology industry in, in the US has been going since the 60s. Venture capital has been going since the 70s. There is a huge amount of experience and growth there. And, and the UK is, is playing catch up. Um, having said that, I think the evolution of, of the UK fintech ecosystem has been significant over the last decade. You know, we've had three UK governments in that time, and actually all of them have had various initiatives around this. There's various trade bodies that do a lot of different things, and we've seen increasingly number of international investors set up office here, as well as homegrown offices uh, or homegrown funds as well. The angel ecosystem uh, is, is evolving. The uh, executive ecosystem is evolving, as well as the founder ecosystem. So um, London continues to push. It is competing for capital globally, um, but we have one regulator here, whereas in the US you have three or four, uh, and you've got various states that act very differently in the US, whereas here it's it's quite monoline uh, in terms of end clients. So here is a natural springboard to Europe, um, and there's a lot of uh, headquarters of a lot of banks here, so you have a lot of the ecosystem uh, as well. And just as an observation, it is... Uh, having lived in the States, the US banking system is actually seems very 1970s, um, you know, regulations that prevent sort of state to state transfer, make it more difficult to have state to state transfers and that sort of thing. Whereas um, I feel like in Europe, particularly in the UK, we've been quite on the cutting edge of, of, of people being able to kind of make quick transfers between accounts or use some of these services that technology sort of underpins. Is that the case? Yeah, there's definitely aspects of the UK 
system that have meant that some of these new fintechs have 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 built here first rather than the US. So, you know, I think we the speed at which you can get approval to be a fintech here, although it's caught up in the US, has it was faster here than it was anywhere else. Uh, and at the same tone, you do have that factor around, you know, you've, you've mentioned um, the money transfers across border. That's an area where a lot of fintechs, particularly as it relates to Europe here, have, have sprung up. Yes, the US is quite antiquated when it comes to traditional banking. I'd say in terms of their adoption of new technology, um, it has been more advanced, I think, to date. But I do think UK has picked up. So let's talk a little bit about how it works. Let's say someone's got a grand idea and they th- they think they've invented something new or they've got a new niche in this market. How does it work with you? I mean, do you get dozens a week or, or you know x number a month of people coming to you pitching ideas and and how do you decide what you think is going to be a runner, what's going to be a great idea? How does the process work? Sure. I think we we've seen lots of pitches over the years. On average in a month there's anywhere between 100 and 200 coming through the door probably about 4000 seen over the the 7 year period so there's a lot of lot of pitches right um and you know i think one of the differences we've had with with the illuminate model is a lot of the backers of our fund are the industry so major banks major corporates individuals which allows you to be demand led as what is the industry trying to solve what are the problems they're trying to solve and then you can be sort of quite thematically driven as to what investments you're going after and then trying to find the best teams globally that solve those problems um in in my mind the earlier the investor the the more important the founders are and and also the balance between the founding team like skill set thinking styles um and the relationship they have with each other because these are hugely stressful journeys and so the ability for these teams to to work under high stress and work with each other under high stress is is key sector understanding or product understanding is important for credibility when they're building out to to early customers um and the ability to hire a great team or a team that's even better than them as they scale uh, and go through go through things and given you know the industry you're in the ability to tell a story and articulate a story is really important as well when it comes to everything from sort of fundraising getting customers you know partnerships and and growth overall yeah, that that's an interesting point I and mean, let's talk about that a little bit i mean there comes a point clearly in the growth of a company, it's got a good idea, it's got the technology, it, uh, it's raised the capital, it's hiring the right staff. But as you said, it needs to tell that story. When you're looking at that, does communications in a way come into kind of building that, uh, I don't know, the story around the company or the kind of reaching out more broadly to the market and other wider investors? How important is it? Yeah, I think it's it's absolutely critical. You know, I think the interesting thing about fintech, which obviously sits within financial services, there's a huge trust component. It's it's almost aligned with healthcare in in that concept. And with that trust, other words like reputation come into come into effect. And you know, there's there's regulation as well. It's a highly regulated industry. So um the communications piece is absolutely critical when it comes to funding, with doing deals, we're doing partnerships articulating your story to sell to potential hires, to sell to potential customers. And the makeup of that storytelling or the makeup of the founders will have a huge impact on what their capabilities are around the communications and the and the, and the storytelling, right? Often there's very technical founders in these business, which may or may not 
come with a uh, an ability to sort of articulate what they're doing as well. So that's where the balance of the top team or the founding team is critical, right? You need the technical capabilities, but you also need the ability to communicate and articulate. And also having an awareness of where you have those skills and where you don't have those skills. So getting your ego out of the way to hire in those skills where it's needed. I think one of the things that often gets underrated with the companies that we see is there's the external communication piece, but there's also the internal communication piece. You know, I think it's is it the Dunbar rule when you get over 150 people in your firm, you can't know everybody. So as your firm is scaling, you need to have internal comms as much as you need to have external comms. Um, and I think this becomes more and more important as we go forward, right? We often have with financial services, what is the business doing? You know, we've had Simon um, Simek, who's very much pushed the why. And I think as the world is moving on now, how is becoming more important? Was it, you know, how are you doing this stuff? Is it impacting the environment? Is it impacting society? And I think mission-driven fintechs is going to be something we're going to see more and more of. That's very interesting. Related to that in a way, because I think of it in terms of steps of the growth of a company, we often hear about Series A, Series B, Series C, and it can go on, I guess, down the alphabet. I, I don't know when it, quite when it stops. But talk to me about when you feel that you know a, a company's launched, it's got through a first round of funding, um, and when do you start to think about things like that? I mean, obviously, you've, you've got to get the technology right, you've got to get the business concept right, the, I, I guess, talk me through it. But when do you say all right, now we really need to think a bit more broadly about go-to-market strategies that also include some of that narrative. Yeah, and I think for those that don't know what a Series A, B, and C is, it's literally a label of the round of funding that's happened, and it's obviously sequential, right? So the later the number in the alphabet, the later the funding round of the the company. Um, And that's where a lot of the press focuses, actually, around fintech, is the amount of money raised, which which is an easy metric to measure, but I think it's a dangerous metric to measure as well at the same tone because how much money you raise doesn't necessarily correlate to success of the business, right? It gives you a good shot at it. It allows you to hire the best people um, and spend money where you need to in terms of the technology and, uh, and, and, and the product. But, you know, actually, I think there's also a lot of overfunded companies at the moment. We're in an environment at the moment where there's never been more capital going into private markets. Um, particularly around sort of venture and private equity. So product market fit, I think, is actually a better read of how these companies are really doing. Now, that for me is sort of number of customers, the willingness to pay of the customer, which obviously feeds through to the revenue line. Um, And, you know, I think a good way to sort of read that or, or to see it from the outside looking in is sort of customer references. You know, things like Trustpilot are interesting companies when it comes to sort of B2C. For B2B technology companies, is often sort of what are the case studies saying? Um, and increasingly over time, actually, we've seen more and more of the financial services sector. So a lot of banks are now investing directly in fintech companies. And I think that is an indicator as to how well these products are aligned to the industry when you often see banks uh, or financial corporates backing these companies at the same tone as well. Um, so, you know, the, the funding is one way to judge how a company is doing. And the later the funding round, the more revenue there needs to be in the business because later stage investors are a lot more numbers driven, whereas I think early stage investors tend to be very people driven. Um, but I think you know the, the, the not losing sight on product market fit and who is the customer 
and what are they using this for is really the criticality. Mm. When it comes to reputation, you know, as you mentioned, it's a, obviously a highly regulated industry. How much do you have to worry about reputational risks? What sort of risks are there? Uh, absolutely. So, you know, if you're selling something to uh, an end consumer, you've got to be, you know, it's highly likely you're going to have to be regulated. Um, and there's reputational risk attached to that. Uh, you obviously have to go through a stringent process and you're going to be monitored as you go through. One of the, the sort of juxtapositions in the industry often is when you're backed by venture capital, where growth is key, is a key metric, there's a fine line to play as a business leader as to growth at all costs versus making sure you're not sort of overselling or misselling product. Um, and I think one of the things that we have to overlay that with is where's the economic environment, right? Money is cheap, rates are low. We've had a new wave of lending products come out recently, you know, the buy now, pay laters, um, which, you know, it will be seen whether these things have been oversold or not over time when we see an economic shift in the environment, right? When we start to see rates rise, but also when we start to see uh, the economic downturn at some point, which will come. Um, same is true of corporate lending. Uh, a lot of the covenants are quite light these days. Um, and a lot of the risk models haven't been tested in a downturn. So, you know, I think things like that will be important to see as it relates to reputation and, and risk uh, in, in different economic cycles. I mean, you make a really good point. And clearly, we've had a cheap money for well over a decade. Um, that era looks likely to come to an end fairly soon. We're entering probably an interest rate increase cycle. Will it have a big shakeout? Do you, does, does the industry expect it to have a big shakeout, both in terms of capital available for fintech startups, but also the ability of business models to work? I think so. Um, and I think the interesting thing for me around this, and I include myself in this, right? I've only been a professional investor in a in an upswing market. You know, I worked in financial markets through three different downswings, so I've sort of seen it through a different lens. But um, you know, a lot of the people who built businesses or invested in businesses in the UK have done it in an up market. So I think it's going to be really interesting to see how much of the resilience of these business models. You know, Warren Buffett is uh, is very famous for sort of pointing out that, you know, when the tide runs out, which businesses uh, are, are still going. And I think this is where things like overfunding businesses, lack of cost control, lack of focus on revenue, but also importantly, revenue stickiness, like how sticky is your client? Um, you know, one of the metrics that's quite interesting to watch for investors is something called CAC, right? So it's cost of acquisition of customers um, as, as the acronym. And that is increasing at the moment because obviously there's a lot of fintechs out there. You, you only have to go, you know, I came on the tube here and you just have to look on the tube and all the adverts for the, for, for the fintechs, right? So cost of acquisition of customer is, is getting increasingly high. Now, how many of these tools are going to be useful when things aren't going so good? is going to be an important factor to see what is going to happen to non-performing loans in a lot of these businesses uh, over time. So, yeah, I think the the downturn is going to be interesting to see what the shakeout is. Yeah. As you mentioned earlier on, I mean, successive um, UK governments have sought to try and sort of underpin this sector or sort of perhaps make sure that the, the environment is conducive to kind of sustained growth in the fintech sector. In April uh, this year, the Chancellor introduced something that I think they called the scale box um, and another a set of other initiatives that was, I think, around enhancing regulation, but also kind of initiatives between the Bank of England and the Treasury, a task force on digital finance, and then some reforms as well to listing rules and capital markets. I mean, put, putting all that together, it's quite a lot in that. What's your sense of 
the moves that the government is trying to take in, in terms of whether it is creating an even more conducive environment um, for, for the sector? I, I think the three governments that have kind of been in place over this time have actually done a pretty good job around fintech. I think it's clearly been driven by the fact that financial services is such a big component of the UK GDP, and this is obviously a future state uh, of, of financial services, or at least a decent part of it. Um, so I think the government's done a pretty good job. You know, there's been various trade reviews, trade bodies, you know, fintech sector reviews at various points. I think those have been interesting. I think, you know, if I was trying to point to areas where I think there's improvement that can still happen, you know, I think the deployment of government capital Ha, could be more efficient uh, around fintech, right? So, you know, not to sort of call out names per se, but I think British Business Bank um, deployment into, into technology overall has been um, constructive. I think it doesn't necessarily have uh, a, a fintech strategy per se that aligns with this, but I know that's things that have been come up in the recent reviews. UK pension funds and lack of exposure within Venture capital has been interesting. There's obviously a huge history there around the sort of 90s and the wipeout. But I think there's been an evolution now where technology is such a core part of the future state of every industry that that's pretty critical to change. And we are way behind the US as it relates to endowments and pension funds exposure to, to venture capital. And, you know, I think, you know, the Competition and Markets authorities CMA, um, is going to be very busy around this space over the next few years. And, you know, our, our, our authority there around takeovers uh, and, and, and mergers doesn't have a sector expertise approach, whereas some countries do. And I think that might be challenging going forward, given how much, uh, how much stuff is, is ongoing there. Like, I mean, I, I think it's a really hard job there. Uh, and hopefully the more and more of these deals that do that sort of um, that uh, expertise gets intrinsically baked into those teams. Um, but I think not having a sector-led approach when it comes to takeovers and, 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 and M&A overall uh, can, can be challenging. And when it comes to listings, I mean, I think it's still, my, my sense is that it's still the ultimate objective of any sort of a company that's growing rapidly and looking to list that NASDAQ is the natural go-to market to list on. And that's where the capital pool of capital is most readily available. They'll raise the most in, in an IPO or whatever listing format they, they choose. Can that be changed? Uh, can changes to the rules in the UK make the UK a more attractive market for even European, European sort of uh, fintech startups to list? I think it can be changed, but we have to be realistic that these things take time, right? So I think firstly, I think you're right. You know, NASDAQ has the bulk of the tech listings in, in the US, but there is a huge depth of expertise in the, in the professional investors in the US as it relates to technology companies. The UK, I think, has some way to go in terms of the understanding of the technology industries and, and how that plays out in terms of um, the, the viewpoint on how professional investors are assessing these technology companies. So, you know, I think year to date, there's been 37 technology listings in the UK. A lot of those are trading underwater. Now, that may be due to where they were priced and where they should be priced, but I think a lack of performance in the market overall doesn't help the ongoing demand around this. You know, you mentioned, um, you know, the, the legislation around listings. You know, I think two things to sort of pull up there. 
There's share class control acts in the US that allow founders to have greater control over companies versus the stake that they have in those companies. And I think that is something that the UK is wrestling with at the moment in terms of deciding what they do. And the other thing is SPACs have been a huge pole of potential capital and capital that has meant a lot of these companies have gone uh, public in the US. And I think you know other countries in Europe do that. We don't currently do that in the UK. So I think there's... Whether that's right or wrong will, will be proved out over time. But I think that also means that there is a wave of deals that you're just not seeing. Um, I think it's actually been pretty good compared to where we were. But these things take time. And I think the expertise within the industry. And the other thing is, is there's a lot of, there's a lot of operators in these businesses that have scaled through companies. If you look in the US, the amount of um, people that have come out of, uh, you know, Google and Facebook and have gone on to sort of make their own companies. I think we are now starting to see executives that have done growth in fintech in the UK is becoming founders as well. So I think all of this stuff feeds through, um, but it takes time. Creates a bigger ecosystem exactly. over time. Yeah. Well, let me ask about something a, a, a bit wider. Obviously, we the world thinks a lot about digital currencies, about whether it's Bitcoin, Ethereum, whatever they may be. Is there a fundamental, will there be, if, if they if they reach a critical mass, and obviously even central banks are exploring how they would create their own or use some sort of form of digital currency, they can't afford to ignore it forever, even if the markets fluctuate and a lot of people have fundamental doubts about whether there can be a, some sort of universal digital currency. But does it change things for the fintech sector in a way that it's not, you know, I suppose you do away with currency to currency transfers or something? What 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 sort of how does it make thinking change? Yeah, I think there's two there's two different buckets here to really differentiate between. I think firstly is the sort of crypto assets piece, and you just sort of you mentioned some of the currencies, right? You know, things like Bitcoin and Ethereum are some of the the most famous, but there's obviously hundreds of of, of these coins at, at this, and thousands of these coins at this point. Um, and you know, not to get into the argument of whether there's value there or not, because I think that could be a podcast entirely in its own, and someone who's got more expertise in it than than myself, but. We have invested heavily as a fund in a lot of the infrastructure around this stuff. So, you know, you're actually seeing traditional finance organizations now start to figure out how can they help clients store these assets, right, um, and, and trade these assets. So, you know, a lot of the banks are now getting into this space. You know, there is clearly significant value because you take someone like Coinbase, you know, their market cap if you add up four or five major global banks, they add up to the same market cap as Coinbase. So there's clearly an ecosystem here that is that is viewed to have value. Um, so there's the crypto assets piece. The other bucket to really think about here is the technology that's but that's behind this, right? And you know, your listeners will have heard of things like you know blockchain coming up in various uh, news articles, you know, and that now sort of has various iterations of. DLT, so distributed ledger technologies. And I think this is very exciting because there is um, sort of, there's techniques here as to how you record transfer of value that actually has application not only within financial services, but other industries as well. And I think there's a huge bunch of use cases already. Uh, It's not the problem solver for everything, but there's a huge bunch of use cases there where ledger technology or 
blockchain technology will have application that feeds through to the industry overall, right? And that will have over time significant cost savings, compliance attributes to it. You'll you know be able to control data better and and, and all of that. Interesting. Thinking sort of five, 10 years down the track, I mean, already, you know, I think about myself and my mobile phone and the types of apps I have on there to access my bank account, maybe to kind of, I I suppose I could probably um, uh, search around for a different mortgage deal or something. I can transfer some money abroad. What would you envisage? And I'm sort of obviously a dinosaur, but young people probably have many more. What do you envisage it being like in sort of five to 10 years time? What would be the kind of the, the sort of 25-year-olds' use of apps on their phone in this space by then? Yeah, so so it's a great question. And I think, uh, you know, we can, we can revisit this in uh, five years' time, Luke, and see whether uh, I'm remotely right or not. But I think there's, there's a number of buckets in, in my mind that are, that are quite exciting. Firstly, um, I do think the crypto asset space continues to, to grow at a huge pace at this point. I think sustainable finance uh, is something clearly uh, that it has a lot of a push from the younger generation. And I think we will find over time that sustainable finance actually becomes, rather than it being its own bucket, it actually becomes much more mainstream. So in the same way today that analysts are assessing companies based on annual accounts, they'll also be have a line item there, how they're assessing people on the, the sustainability of these firms as well. So I think those are two buckets that that, that excite me. Um, you know, I think payments continues to be the largest, most established uh, space. Um, I think lending evolution continues to be quite interesting. I think there'll be new buckets of of lending, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast. I think senior adults is a, a quite an untapped field at the moment. Um, and there's a blend where actually today, it's already happening today, where fintech is part of nearly every company. So if we take Uber as an example, you know, you and I would get an Uber to transport us from one place to another, right? We think of it as car sharing, but actually Uber's doing transfers of payments to their drivers in the same tone, they're also selling them insurance products. So, uh, and this is something called embedded finance. And I think this is something that will that will increase over time. A lot of industries will have financial products or financial offerings embedded in their existing workflows. So the end client or the consumer won't necessarily think this is a fintech, but at the same tone, it has fintech attributes to it. Yeah, that makes me think of, you know, we talk about the internet of everything or the internet of things. That's kind of like the fintech of things in as much that anything you do in a way is either maybe a transfer or related to a transfer of money or insurance product that is financially related. Is that what you, I mean, almost activities in day-to-day life would involve an awful lot of strands that it actually ultimately loop back into fintech. Yeah, and I think, you know, firstly, I think you should copyright the fintech of things. We heard it here first, didn't we? Um, but yeah, and I think the important thing is the end user doesn't necessarily think of it as a fintech. They'll just think of it as they'll be doing a payment or they'll be offered a product as it relates to something that's happening. You know, you mentioned the internet of things. You know, there's a lot of, you know, watches now that are feeding through data to your health insurer, for example, and you know what does that mean in terms of the cost of your health insurance over time, which may be a, you know a new type of model of assessment of those kind of data. So yeah, all of this stuff feeds through, and I think it blends across industry. You know, you mentioned mortgages earlier. You know, property is an area where. Um, there's a huge amount of financial stuff that, that goes through, you know, logistics and supply chain. There's a huge amount of, you know, factoring around that. Amazon does huge amounts of work there. Uh, all of these things are fintechs, but it all sits 
under another industry. Yeah. So, Mark, we've we've talked a lot about the the whole sort of, if you like, ecosystem of fintech. What falls underneath? What different buckets do you think of when you when when someone uses that term? Um, obviously, quite a lot of things fall underneath it. How do you define it or break it down when you look at investments and trying to spread capital as well across across the different areas that you could invest in? Sure, I think there's different subsectors, and it can be quite confusing for people when they're first looking at this. So, I think firstly, payments is the largest and most established fintech sector, and that comes under so many different guises. Lending, um, you know, that started off with sort of peer-to-peer product, you know, 10 to 15 years ago, and a sort of today, it's very much around sort of buy now, pay, pay later have been a lot of the, the options or factoring around supply chain, which is hugely relevant at the moment. Capital markets fintech is actually the second most active and most well-funded sector um, that probably isn't particularly well covered by the the market because it's nuts and bolts and not not particularly sexy stuff, but a lot of banks put a lot of capital into that space. Um, consumers are going to be a lot more familiar with things like wealth and asset management tech, which covers everything from trade tech to, to, to wealth tech, right? Where you have apps on your phone, which help you with budgeting, which have you with your bank account, which have you with your pension transfers um, or, or allow you to trade stocks. And, you know, that led to the sort of onset of these neobanks, which are bank accounts that have been set up on new innovation technology stacks. Um, Insure tech is obviously a huge factor uh, and a huge growth area, although that industry is probably moving slower than the, than the banks per se. Crypto assets uh, and I think sustainable finance are, are key ones. When you look at small and medium-sized businesses as well, there's, you know, kind of the CFO dashboard, as it were, like a lot of accounting software or, you know, what's the money in the firm and all of that. I think there's a lot of improvement that that continues to happen there as well. So those are some of the different buckets uh, of fintech. I happened to see yesterday that uh, um, Amazon is in a uh, has decided that it's no longer going to accept payments using Visa credit cards. It seems to be, I mean, I, I, I sort of take almost a journalistic take on the story, but it's almost like you know, there's a fee that's involved. There are ways of transferring money much more cheaply these days. How do you sort of contextualize that? Do you see that this is kind of a shakeout in obviously a very global, enormous global player that has kind of called the shots uh, on, on another enormous global player in payment systems like Visa and, and obviously MasterCard? How do you view it? I mean, is it kind of a kind of saying we will not accept this sort of costs any longer because it can be done much more cheaply or is it something else behind it? Uh, I think with a firm like that, there's definitely something else behind it. But, you know, this is where controlling the end client is absolutely critical for your ability to influence these things. You know, Amazon is so big that they have the ability to sort of stand up against someone like Visa. A lot of fintechs wouldn't have the capabilities to be able to do that. Um, But yeah, I do think it's significant, right? You know, there's always been a lot of talk that, you know, Amazon and Google would have, and Facebook would be going into banking. And there was always a lot of concern around that. Actually, what's been interesting is a lot of these firms have gone with a cloud first offering. So they own, you know, they own the storage where a lot of these financial services data sit. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's hugely significant actually for, for fintech at the top end of the market. And, you know, these things I think will continue to play out as a lot of these big firms jostle for positions. You know, I think one of the things we haven't touched on today, but if another similar firm would be sort of, you know, metaverse announcements around, you know, Facebook, when you think about the fact that the the gaming industry is bigger than the movie industry uh, and the music industry combined, 
the payment transfer that happens in gaming, right? And will happen in meta metaverse, right? That again is another opportunity for these firms to control the, the payments and the flow of that capital. Um, so yeah, I think the Amazon news is hugely significant and we were having some discussions in our team around that yesterday. I'd love to be a fly on the wall in the decision-making around that because it's definitely going to put some noses out of joint, I'm sure. We've talked about an awful lot today and I think it's really, it, it's fantastic to have, for me anyway, clarity around what a lot of this, the term fintech means, what falls underneath that, the areas where you know investment can take place, how you build those companies, what the future holds, how you make the infrastructure kind of um, resilient for the future, if you like, in terms of raising capital, listing, et cetera. It's an awful lot. Um, I wonder how, how you find time to relax. I mean, we ask this everyone on, on To The Point. We try and sort of think about, you know, we live in a very busy, noisy uh, world. Where do you go to? What do you do? How do you find space to sort of think and try to find clarity? Yeah, and I'm I'm very keen to hear your views on this, Luke, because I think this is an area that everybody everybody struggles with. Um, for for me, I, I'm I'm a big believer in you do have to have downtime, um, and that has a because uh, I've definitely experienced burnout professionally before, and I think if you're not giving yourself the mental space or the physical space to sort of retool and uh, and and recover. It's very challenging, particularly in this demanding world that we all live. Um, for me, uh, family is is a key part of that. Um, I don't have social media on my phone at this point because I feel like that um, is, you know, these are dopamine devices, right? They're they're built to keep you engaged. Um, uh, just finished a book um, by Mo Gaudak around uh, happiness. He's a really interesting guy. Ex. Um, chief business officer uh, at Google X, and he sadly lost his son, but he's written a lot around sort of creating your own space. And I think that that's something that I definitely um, am taking to heart from from that perspective. But what would be your view? Well, uh, I'm with you on uh, needing to find the space. I mean, I always, I, uh, I try to carve out time to play tennis, as you know, from time to time. Mostly that leads to enormous amounts of frustration. Yeah. But still, at the end of the day, after a couple of hours on the tennis court, I do feel a little bit more relaxed. And, and that's good. You're absolutely right. I mean, children, family is both a, a source of kind of chaos and, uh, and sort of uh, demand, you know, heavy demands, but also actually a source of relaxation and yeah. great fun. And so I do find that, uh, you know, and you've got a second kid that's just arrived and that's a very exciting time. And, and with children, it's great on weekends. I do find that a great unplugging and decompression sort of moment. So, yeah. 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 I think with tennis, it, there's there's something about the meditative state where you have to concentrate on the ball. Otherwise, you're not going to get it back over the court. And and I think that's the same with a lot of activities. You know, I think it's the same when you're skiing, right? You have to kind of focus on what you're doing. And it's clearing your mind just to focus on that repetition, which I think is really helpful um, for for just, you know, giving yourself some space. You're absolutely right. Even things like I mean, yoga or other things like that that require kind of whether it's breathing or whether it's kind of just get a slightly, slightly more meditative state or concentration in a different way from, as you said, the dopamine rush of looking at apps or doing another task that's come in on email. There are things you can do that focus the mind in clearer, sort of more relaxed ways, whether it's a sport like tennis or yoga or whatever it may be, even a long walk in the park, right? But I think for anyone, that's kind of valuable. I mean, obviously, Mark, you've had a phenomenal career in banking. You've had an incredible ride for the last best part of a decade now with investing in, in fintech, early stage, whatever um, it may be. 
you must have your own ideas, I, I, I think, around what you'd like to do or sort of own business ideas. Um, where are you taking things? Yeah, I mean, it's it's been a great run with Illuminate and we've we've built and empowered and uh, an amazing team that will go on to do great things with the next fund. I'm stepping back from the business uh, to pursue my own fintech idea. Um, I think there's a significant opportunity with the Cedar senior adult space. So over 50s, over 60s, over 70s, you know, in the UK alone, um, the over 60s own over 75% of the housing assets. They control most of the personal wealth in this country, but also in, in developed world. And I think there's various macro trends that are playing out that, that create an interesting opportunity, right? We're going through the biggest intergenerational transfer of wealth now for the next 20 years. Pension pots aren't what they need to be. Um, and, you know, the housing market has all-time highs, and that's where a lot of people's net worth sits. Uh, on top of that, um, financial product just isn't really understood. Um, you know, financial literacy isn't understood. And I think uh, somewhere in all of that is a, is an interesting opportunity for me to explore next. And I think, you know, you get one crack at life. Uh, so I think it's a, a good opportunity for me, having been inspired by a lot of the entrepreneurs that I've had the privilege to be pitched from and, and to back um, to, to give it a go myself. Good on you. Well, the very best of luck. I know that my parents could probably do with some of that. I'll, be, I'll, I'll let them know. That's fantastic. Many, many thanks for joining us, Mark. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Luke. Cheers. Thank you for listening to To The Point with Portland. You can find out more about Portland and what we do at www.portland-communications.com and you can follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook. Stay tuned for more episodes being released in the coming weeks.